1: and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past.
0: Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system Or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple the guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed
2: Welcome to the New Books and Alcohol, Drugs, and Intoxicants, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jen Wang. This podcast features conversations and discussions with scholars and experts across diverse fields on the recently published books about substance use. My goal for this podcast is to bridge the gap between academic and public knowledge on drugs and their implications for individuals and societies. For more information about the podcast, please go to newbooksandalcoholdrugsintoxicants.com or follow us on Tumblr at Drugs. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hi, welcome to New Books on Alcohol, Drugs, and Intoxicants. We're here today with Dr. Karen Wise, who is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at West Virginia University. And we're here today to talk about her new fascinating book, Party School, Crime, Campus, and Community, which examines the consequences of extreme partying and drinking for students and others in the college community. So welcome, Karen. Oh, well, thank you. Good to be here. <laughs> so can you um, please tell us a little bit about yourself, um, about your intellectual and research trajectory and how you came to study where you're studying?
3: Sure. Well, as you just mentioned, I am I am an associate professor at West Virginia University, and I teach um, in the areas of, of crime and specifically victimization, and my research... Um, which much of in the past has been on sexual victimization, has really been geared uh, recently towards campus crime and and specifically alcohol-related crime. Mm -hmm. So, so, yeah, what I've been working on for the last mm, three or four years is really uh, something that I call intoxication crime, which are crimes where either the offender, victim, or both parties are drunk or, or high on drugs at the, at the time, and, and so really that's what um, uh, I've been working on in terms of research and really where the book came into play was um, sort of as I was looking at the crimes that take place um, at on the college campus and in the surrounding areas, it became very obvious to me that... The majority of those crimes were really related to students drinking and drug use, and and so I just became very interested in, in sort of examining that in a in a much more specific way.
2: Okay, so it is through your interest in um, intoxicants and crime that you came to uh, focus on the whole college community and um, the partying uh, lifestyle that uh, is inherent in the party school, so to speak.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a great environment for looking at intoxication crime because, I mean, in my estimate, just from my own research and certainly from what many people have done on college crime, if you eliminated the, the partying, the intoxication, the, you know, especially the extreme intoxication, you have very little crime on most college campuses. It, it really is, it's a problem that is related to alcohol and drugs primarily.
2: Yeah, um, so how would you define um, a party university? What are some of the characteristics associated with um, the typical, quote, unquote party university?
3: Well, that's actually an excellent question, and I do actually take a lot of time in my introductory chapters to do that because, you know, there's partying, drinking, and drug use on ever, you know, probably a free college campus in the United States and, you know, abroad. Um, But what I was looking at is really um, an extreme version of that. And so a party university to me really became, I mean, the typical party university can be um, defined by by a few characteristics. They're usually large, more than 10,000 undergraduates. Uh, They tend to be located in geographically isolated areas. Uh, they they have a large proportion of their of their undergraduate students living either on campus or right outside of campus in so called college towns. Uh, they also have a lot of traditional students, so these younger students right out of high school, eighteen to twenty four, um, and you know very importantly, there's a very large Greek life, and probably most importantly, they're usually sports oriented. So they take a real lot of pride in both their sports and. This drinking culture. I mean, that's really what the uh, typical part of university looks like.
2: Mm-hmm. So a really strong um, athletic um, department. Um, yeah, and in the more suburban area, more rural
3: area. Yeah, well, isolated. I think that's the real the real key. So the students come to these schools, and there's very little else to do if they're living here. They're not close to urban environments, and so you just tend to have when there's nothing much more to do when they have easy access to the alcohol, which is actually a, a very common phenomenon in these college towns where there's a lot of alcohol outlets. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it all sort of coalesces into this, uh, this, what I've been calling in the book a party subculture. So this, uh, this very strong cultural norm that you know, you study during the days, or you head to classes, and then at night you get together and and go out drinking, or spit, stay in drinking, and a lot of times it's a little of both. And so that's that's what ends up happening in these um, in these party universities. And of course, there's lists of so-called party schools that come out every year that mm-hmm. do their own calculations of you know that they, the students self-identify as drinking a lot and using marijuana, what they call reefer madness, sex. and then they they calculated they compare it against how much the students self-identify as studying. And so <laughs> they get, you know, these students who are very strong in the party lifestyle and very weak in the studying and, and, you know, and it's all self-identified which I think is really important because students who strongly identify with the party subculture um, make, you know, it, it, together make, uh, you know, put these their schools on the party school list. And mm-hmm. then it becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy where they are very proud to have their school on the list. And so you see the same schools on these lists, you know, year after year after year. And it's really because of the students themselves are really identifying that way.
2: Yeah, I think it's fascinating that um, you emphasize on the whole identification part aspect of this, um, of how students identify with um you know, being a party animal or being at a party university. But surely not all students um, feel that way, right, or are, are, are proud of the fact that their school is, you know, on the list of top ten party schools.
3: No, not at all. In fact, there are, there's, you know, uh, some students who are incredibly embarrassed about it, and as they get close to graduation, they're actually worried about it. You know, if it, but but if sometimes it's the same students who were. Thrilled to come to a party school, and so you know they loved it during their freshman sophomore year, and then there's sort of a transitional shift as they begin to realize that you know they're going to be in the job market pretty soon, and now they have to defend you know their degree to some to some extent. So there there's a lot of, of variation, yes, in, in the label itself and where students feel. Um, how they feel about whether it's a good thing or a bad thing and a lot of them actually know that it's a little of both
2: Mm -hmm. so like like a mix there's some positive um, aspects and also some negative aspects
3: yeah yeah I mean it's it's yeah I think it's easy to forget since I wrote the book really to highlight the problems but (laughs) it's but it's easy to forget that I mean they have a lot of fun you know it's fun to go to a party store they have fantastic memories they, you know, as alumni, they get together and they can laugh about these great weekends they had and these crazy pranks. And so, I mean, there's a lot of benefits to, you know, I mean, it's, and it's one of the reasons why these schools are so popular and, 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 you know, and they, uh, entice a lot of students to come because there really are some benefits for the students themselves despite the fact that there's, you know, a pretty ugly underside to, um, to Sort of what's going on right now at these schools. Yeah,
2: so I guess let's um, focus a little bit on the ugly side of extreme <laughs> partying since we're mentioning that right now. Um, so, what are some of the dangers and negative consequences that um, um, come to find associated with the whole party subculture?
3: Well, I and you know, I found actually quite a bit, and it was for me it was disturbing. I think it probably would be disturbing for anybody who has children at these schools uh-huh. or certainly from a faculty perspective where, you know, because during the day, everything looks fantastic and the students are very pleasant and polite and follow all the rules, but it, there's just something about this party situation. You know, the situation at night when they're together, and of course, it, there's a lot of alcohol involved, oftentimes the drugs, and so what I did was I outlined um, three basic harms, the, the, the direct harms to the users themselves. So the students mm-hmm. who are partying, whether it's late, you know, and the late partiers really don't have too many problems. It's when they start drinking heavily after, uh, you know, eight or more drinks and they're going out three or more nights a week. And then you've got these really extreme partiers who literally barely um, put any effort into their academics. It's really all about the partying. And so they themselves have a lot of uh negative consequences it's just the, the you know the nature of the beast that they're they're very vulnerable when they're that drunk and so i actually uh do a lot of calculations in terms of their risks uh with the more that they party and i will just as a couple of examples um what i found was when i actually uh, distinguished uh between the types of partiers light heavy and, and extreme Mm -hmm. we see that the the risks in almost every category of harms, including crimes, really go up considerably. So, for instance, you've got um, only 3% of these lighter partiers that actually are injured due to accident, but it goes up up to almost 20% for the heavy partiers, and then it's 34% for these extreme partiers. So, you know, a third of these students uh, are having accidents at some point, When, when they're drunk, and then the illnesses are similar. It's 17% for light partiers, 32% for heavy partiers, and then it's almost half for the extreme partiers. And it's crazy for what they call blacking out. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a, you know, it's a very common phenomenon that I haven't quite gotten a, a real handle on exactly how they're defining this blacking out. I mean, other than what generally people say, which is that you forget that you've done things and you keep, you have no memory. And you got, we've got 81% of extreme parties say at some point they've blacked out, which, um, you know, to me, is a, <laughs> that's very disturbing. And that happens multiple times, you know, during during the course of their, their uh, student careers. So you've got a lot of these risks to the direct users, which are a problem in and of itself from an outsider's perspective. Now, mind you, they don't see it as a problem. They actually mm-hmm. think it's kind of funny, Mm-hmm. They, you know, it bonds them, they have something to talk about with their friends, and, and so they really brush it off as some kind of collateral damage, you know, which is bound to happen, stuff happens. What I spend a couple of, uh, you know, chapters talking about are really the, the harms that happen to people who aren't partying mm-hmm. from these partiers, and so, you know, I call those the indirect or the secondhand harms. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've got about a 20 percent of our students who don't drink at all they don't touch drugs they are here to learn that's their, their purpose for being here and they they've got a lot of frustrations from from uh their fellow party party or students and um so even if the students themselves aren't partying they're they're around the, the partying and so they're they're um you know, some of the harms that they're experiencing are things like you know the the massive amount of litter from just student you know the, the students drinking and and dropping their trash. That um, the noise mm-hmm. from parties that last until four in the morning. Uh, there's a real problem with harassment, verbal harassment, and sometimes it can get physical from students who just get wasted and lose all sensibility of <laughs> of right and wrong. Mm-hmm. And and so the, the the non-partiers have really had to change their They're just their regular routines to avoid being around certain areas of town on Friday and Saturday nights. Sometimes they won't even go to sporting events because you know so many of the students in the student sections are so wasted that it becomes uncomfortable for them. So, so that's a real impact, I think, um, for the non-partiers. And then, of course, everybody else in the the college town is impacted. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've got a when you live in a college town where there's a a big party subculture, you also have to avoid, you know, certain areas of town and learn to um, just sort of do things that you wouldn't regularly do just because you know that there's a potential that your car could be vandalized or there's a potential that, um, you know, somebody can walk by and vomit on your sidewalk. And it's, it's just a lot of things that people don't, think about until you actually start living in these areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and I, you know, at some point in, in um, one of the chapters, I sort of thought of it, and because um, I am a criminologist, and I, I compared it to sort of g- gangs that live in a neighborhood. It's it's almost as if they, they've taken the neighborhood's hostage, these uh-huh. extreme partiers, and I, you know, I, there's a, a, um, a narrative from one of my uh, my, um, respondents in the, in the book about, um, which, uh, she was describing as a drive-by egging. And it, and it was just, it was so peculiar for me to list to, to read her, her words, um, from the interview, uh, from the, uh, the survey and to, to think about it and go, yeah, of course, it's not lethal. It's not gunshots, but it's, Crazy, Just out of the blue, you know, when you're sitting on your porch at night, and somebody drives by and throws eggs at you out of, out of the blue. It's just that kind of thing that really um, has has just made it a little bit um, uninhabitable in parts of these college towns.
2: Yeah, and it seems like uh, as a minority of the students that actually don't participate in these kind of um, ritual, you know, a minority of the students that are uh, non-partiers, right?
3: Right, only only about twenty one percent don't party at all. Um, but there are a lot of partyers who are very responsible. Um, but you know, but the, the numbers really are. It's about sixty percent are either in this heavy or extreme category. So more than half of the students who re, who are partying are doing it extensively.
2: Mm-hmm. So, what do you think differentiates between these different categories? So, between what are some of the characteristics associated with the extreme partiers versus perhaps you know the heavy ones um, versus the light ones? Um,
3: well, some of the, I mean, certainly, and it's probably not very surprising that um, the, the extreme partiers have the lowest GPAs. I mean, they really are not um, here to to learn. Mm-hmm. They, they, you know, in fact, a lot of the. The most extreme party, or do flunk out by the end of the year, or they're put on probation. I mean, it's 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 probably overwhelmingly the number of students who drop out by the end of, or are kicked out by the end of the first year, are because of these issues where they just get caught, they got caught up in in this lifestyle. Um, more men than women are in the extreme category, although it's interesting, there's not a significant difference in the heavier (laughs) party category. So when you actually measure it, um, just in terms of the frequency of how often they're drinking, um, when you distinguish between the, um, the amount of drugs they're using, and of course, when they're drinking, how many drinks they drink, just between those two categories, and you and you look at the heavy, which isn't the, the top 14%, which are the extreme, but this, mm-hmm. this uh, you know, uh, it's more than the light partiers, but, uh, but not as much as the extreme. There's actually no difference in the women and the men. So a lot of women are really partying hard. They're just not to the absolute extremes as uh, the 14%. That's primarily men. Um, we do see slightly more uh, um, of the students who are involved in Greek life. Mm-hmm. Who are extreme partyers and athletics, which is which actually surprised me because I think my uh, stereotype of athletes was that they're you know they're busy, <laughs> busy being yeah. athletes, but yeah, the reality is that they have off time, and uh, during their off time, I guess they're they're making up, um, for uh, you know for when they're in training. So we we do see athletes actually uh, more likely to be in the extreme categories as well. Yeah, and I think
2: it's um, it's disturbing to you know the fact that you mentioned how women and men there's really no difference in terms of um, how much they party, but we also know that women um, suffer more consequences um, associated I with that.
3: Yeah, well, it, in terms of illness, it, some there's in some categories there really isn't a gender difference, but certainly women who are drinking the same amount as men are going to feel it more primarily just because of their size. Mm-hmm. I mean a lot of times they're just smaller. And so they you know, if they're gonna drink seven drinks and so is a man who's a lot larger, yes, she would be more likely to feel the consequences in terms of illness and certainly uh women are more likely to be raped and sexually assaulted than that. Um now on the other hand, men are more likely to get into fights and uh to be injured in other ways. So they're and their accident rates are, I think, slightly higher as well. So, but again, it's probably because they are uh, doing a little bit more in terms of the the drinking and and experimenting more with the drugs. Hmm. So, can you
2: explain a little bit about the whole idea of um, the situated theory of uh, normativity? I think that's one of the theories that you cited.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Well, I have to say, I mean, one of the, I I wrote the book with three broad questions in mind. I mean, one was I wanted to understand the frequency of intoxication crime and, and certainly look at the problems associated with it. And I wanted to understand the consequences for, you know, the surrounding areas. But one of, uh, one of the questions that was really quite important to me was um, why these negative consequences have become so normal. Mm-hmm. And it really did, it, it fascinated me because, again, I see these students as a teacher. <laughs> you know, I, I, they, they seem very pleasant to me. And so when I was hearing so many anecdotes about the nastiness, the, just the, the, as I said, the, the harassment that sometimes borderlines on real hate crimes that could happen, and certainly all of the crime and the bad behavior. I mean, students who party also are more likely to geez, to be, you know, to 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 do criminal activities themselves, to get involved, they're they're getting a lot of citations from, you know, underage drinking and public nuisance and all of these other things. And so, I really wanted to understand why, with all of this going on and all of these consequences, why it had become so normal, and why so many of the students just see it as a normal way of, of college life. And so, what I started to think about was this idea of situational normativity, which is when you, so certain behaviors that could be incredibly deviant and, you know, and everybody would agree are crimes in certain situations are all of a sudden when you maneuver them into a, into a very specific situation, they, you know, the, the values around them change. And so things like the whole, um, um you know, urinating on somebody's rose bushes or something so that seems so silly. And you kind of go, well, you know, most people know that's wrong. Mm-hmm. But somehow in the party situation, which, uh, you know, I sort of define the party situation is very specific. It's, it's, it's almost always nighttime, except for the, the with the exception of one of the games, a football game day. Is a, is a different type of party situation, uh, and that's during the day often. But for the most part, the party situation is at night, you know, maybe after 11 p.m. Um, it's usually around certain areas of the college town, either in their own student-oriented neighborhoods, certainly near bars at these fraternity parties or house parties. Um, you know, it has a lot to do with who's in the audience, so they're usually, you know, groups of them together almost everybody is drunk um, and and they you know the norms just um, encourage bad behavior so the same bad behavior that if you take it out of that situation everybody would agree is wrong just becomes normal when it's in the party situation and it's just this whole the normalization around being wasted and having you know intoxication excuse bad behavior so um so that's really what I, I started delving into and asked a lot of questions that tried to get at um, what they were thinking in terms of why certain behaviors were okay when they were drunk. And I tried to explain it with their rationales and, you know, how they were justifying it. And, um, you know, I, I have to say I'm so a little baffled, but, uh, you know, again, from their perspective, it's just it's okay when they're drunk. It just change, it, it, it changes the, the rule book a bit.
2: Yeah. So it's something that even though they probably know it can be really serious, I'm thinking especially with the whole uh, maybe sexual assault or something or sexual victimization um, on women, but it seems like even the women are um, able to just brush it off, you know, or blame themselves.
3: Well, yeah. I mean, a, a lot, well, a lot of times, the, um, be, again, because everybody's sort of, uh, wasted and they begin to, que- the, the, the victim themselves might question whether or not it really happened or if it happened the way they remember it happened. And and then, of course, you get into issues where they can't, they don't feel comfortable telling anybody or reporting it because they don't want to be considered, you know, that snitch or disloyal to their peers or, or even making too much out of it, you know. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, they're almost convinced that yeah, you're right. They're, they're they're also convinced in some degree that it's sort of normal and that it's a risk that they have to take to be a part of the um, you know this party lifestyle. Because very few students are willing to really say, "I will not be a part of this." Because if they are, they're marginalized. They don't have much of a life here. If it's such a strong culture that they just they just feel like they're. Um, they're not a part of the school if they're not, you know, willing to drink and and make light of all of these things, because uh, then they become almost scapegoated as these complainers. So what are they doing here anyhow? If they if if they don't like the party, they shouldn't be here. And that's really what I you know I've I heard a lot in the in the survey responses.
2: Yeah. So this idea of blaming the victims too. Uh, yeah. 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 Of, um, being, I think you mentioned. The polaristic ignorance, how um, a lot of times even when they see harm being done to the fellow student, a lot of times they wouldn't intervene.
3: Yeah. Well, yeah, again, it's, it's you know, it, there's a lot of literature on bystander response and, and this idea that you've got a group norm where people don't intervene. I mean, don't get me wrong. There is a line where somebody will obviously say, "Whoa, enough is enough, you know, but right. it's, it's a very gray, it's a very gray Line and um, and if you look around and you want to do something but nobody else seems to care and they're all watching in fact entertained mm-hmm. to some degree then you do feel like you're putting yourself out on the limb to be the only one who actually wants to intervene and that's yeah unfortunately what ends up happening a lot of times with not just the you know the worst case scenario of seeing a sexual assault but just fighting. Students will, you know, stand around and find that very entertaining and, uh, just watch and see what happens. And, and sometimes students who are so unbelievably drunk to the point where they almost, you know, could die that kind of, uh, severe, um, intoxication. And, and, and students don't really know how to react. And of course, they also don't want to necessarily bring the, the police, um, to the situation because, of course, everybody's drunk and, you know, and there is mm-hmm. probably, there's drugs around and then that's, you know, a problem with uh, self-incrimination and, you know, getting themselves into trouble.
2: Yeah, so this, there's this whole idea of, first of all, they don't want to betray their, um, you know, other students. They don't want to be ostracized. And then there's also the second component where they don't want to kind of get themselves in trouble, especially yeah. I'm thinking if they're underage, which, you know, we all yeah. know they, they drink,
3: you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the... Um, yeah, I mean, students don't turn 21 until you know sometimes late in their junior year, and so we know a lot of freshmen, sophomores are drinking, and you know we uh, even in, in the in the survey statistics um, that uh, in the in the book the it doesn't really there's very little difference in terms of age and who goes to bars surprisingly considering our laws. But you know, we've uh, a lot of college towns have these types of bars where you can go in eighteen with mm-hmm. the with the assumption you're not going to drink, which is ludicrous. You're <laughs> in the <laughs> bar, you're going to figure out a way to drink. So, um, yeah, the laws of of the, the actual drinking age does not stop. I mean, I, I think everybody kind of knows that they they really do very little to curb drinking before the age of twenty one for sure. But it does stop. But it does impact um, the willingness to bring the police into a situation where, really, you know, if there's a fight or if there's something going on where nine one one really should be called, and there's a uh, there's a hesitancy to do that because of this fear of getting into trouble. It does create quite a quite problem.
2: Yeah. So, what do you think um, the police and the university personnel can do about this?
3: What can they do about it? Yeah. What, what, <laughs> yeah. yeah. How come well, all their
2: efforts have been uh, pretty much uh, useless?
3: <laughs> well, you know, the police, the police really try. It, it, they're in such a, I think I say they're damned if they do, damned if they don't at some point in the book uh-huh. because, you know, the, the students don't like them interfering when they're doing their jobs, right, to... to get them off the streets and do, but, you know, and then you have the non-partiers don't think they do half enough. And of course the the non-student residents who really don't think the police do enough, but there's just so much, I mean, there's so much bad behavior going on um, at night, especially during the weekends that they just need need 5,000 on the police force to control it all. So there, so yes, we could, I think part of the solution really would be to step up enforcement if we had the ability to, you know, the the resources for schools to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just don't think that's possible. Um, You know, it's something that schools are doing, and I think it's an an easy fix, at least in terms of the safety, is our passing these medical amnesty Mm -hmm. um, uh, policies, which is basically to... To give the students a peace of mind that they're not going to get into trouble if they actually do pick up the phone and dial nine one one, and um, I, I, I mean I think that's a fantastic policy. I know there's critics mm. that that don't like that because they're suggesting that then the school was endorsing, you know, this partying. But you know the reality is the partying is already going on. So I think in terms of of um, harm reduction, it probably is very smart. That at least the students can get themselves help without getting into trouble if if they need to uh, call nine one one, and then of course what the schools can do you, you know unfortunately a lot of schools aren't doing anything yeah <laughs> uh, for a variety of reasons and um, you know they I, you know, the, the party the party image uh, works for a lot of these schools and so I don't know if they really want to necessarily. Change that. I mean, I think they do obviously want to keep their students safe, but there's it's a little precarious for them to start um, really going after drinking and drug use because I think they're a little concerned that that might um, impact sort of this uh, you know come to our school to have a great time kind of image. Um, but you know, schools around the country have been trying different things. You know, there's there's sort of laws passed about parties, and you know, and so they're enforcing the noise issues, and and some of the schools are really cracking down on any kind of bad behavior from students, um, and and just uh, you know, the sanctions have increased and that kind of thing. Um, but I think in the long run. It, it, one of the, the best ways to handle the the situation is, is probably from who these schools admit.
0: <laughs> and, and sometimes
3: it's impossible to know who you're admitting. But, you know, the, the issue is, and the students themselves say this in my own survey, they really would like the school, the, the, you know, these schools to be a little bit more selective. Uh-huh. Because the, the thinking is that if you only allow in students with incredibly high GPAs that, in fact, they are going to be less inclined to party, you know, incessantly. And, and those are the ones who are causing the problems. And so, I, you know, I don't think anybody wants to completely get rid of having a good time at, at college. It's just to to curb the, ex- the extreme version of that where people are actually getting hurt in the process. So, mm-hmm. you know, whether that's going to happen either, you know, that's but I, I do know that some schools are actually trying to do that as well. So I, you know they're trying. I don't. I'm not um, highly confident that anything will will help in the in the near future. But I do think something needs to change within the subculture itself because it's hard to um, it's hard to change a subculture. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so there's so much tradition involved. Uh, you know, the students themselves don't even see things like, you know, burning couches. They don't get that that's arson um, or, or, you know, malicious burning. I mean, it's, it's a felony in a lot of areas, and, but the students don't see it that way because it, it's been passed down from generation to generation as a tradition at their schools. So it, that's the hardest part is to change a subculture that really has become so entrenched in tradition.
2: Yeah, do you think it's actually possible to to do that to actually change the students' motivations and the whole ingrained rituals to party um, so extreme? I,
3: I'm I'm not sure. I, I make a few suggestions in the conclusion of the book, and what I I think the only way you can do that is to you have to really reverse the norms that are in place. So for right now, if some of these students are elevated in their status by being like a troublemaker, by, by, you know, doing these crazy things and all mm-hmm. of a sudden they're, like, talked about, they're, you know, they're, they're heroes within the subculture and they're rewarded and, and all of the, be- the bad behavior is reinforced and there's, you know, deviance, admiration and the students are entertained But You have to literally create a, a, an environment where now you're, where students who do anything bad are shamed. Mm-hmm. They're embarrassed, they're humiliated. you know their their peers won't talk to them. I don't know how you get there, but that's really how how you would have to do it and uh, my suggestion was you know you take the most um, you know the big superstars like athletes who you know people really um admire at, at, at a sports oriented school like the biggest athletes or the coaches, and you get them to start the the norm shift. And you get those people to make announcements and say, "Listen, when you behave this way at our games, you're embarrassing us." Um, And and, I mean, that might be a start. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, for right now, a lot of students who come to the to a party school are incredibly amused by their own bad behavior. And if you take like a sports event, that's actually televised and. You know, I've heard comments from from students who who, who kind of think it's awesome. You know, when they're all it was awesome that uh-huh. um, they caught us, you know, having a, a big brawl after the game. You know, they they think that's actually funny and that it elevates their status as, as party school. And so, until you can change that the reward system mm-hmm. and and you go back to the basics where students actually are proud to get. 4.0 <laughs> or do you know to do something that's academically challenging and that kind of thing I mean but until you can do that you're always going to have you're going to be competing with the uh the rewards that students get from the party subculture
2: yeah the social rewards um yeah do you think maybe perhaps is students are more if they have more responsibilities or commitments um that that might perhaps uh Decrease the chance of partying so irresponsibly.
3: Actually, yeah, I mean, I think you make a, a a good point because certainly a um you know what we call a social bond theory would suggest that uh, yeah, if, if you're more involved with conventional activity, uh, so academic um, organizations, or for that matter, working. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm working at a, at a job where there's promotion, you know, not just a you know, you're doing four hours behind the counter at a McDonald's, that kind of a job, but, but a job where you really care about it and you want to grow and, and prove yourself and that kind of thing. Sure, there's A, less time to party, and you also get your rewards elsewhere. So, I mean, it would certainly make sense that, um, you know, and one of the things that I with was one of the criteria of a, of a typical party university is these traditional students. You do have a lot of students at schools that have, you know, a big culture of partying that uh, really they're not working as they may do a few hours in part-time jobs, but they're not working. They don't have children. Um, they, they're not married. They, they have little responsibility outside of having to show up for classes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think that it's, it, Gives them a lot more leisure time, and you know, and, and this creation of, of you know these social groups that um, you know then have all of these internal reward systems based on the the amount they can drink, and and again, all the crazy things that they do when they're drinking. It sounds strange to outsiders that that would elevate somebody's status, but it really does when mm-hmm. you know when you you don't really have all that much else. Uh, to be rewarded by, you, you know, you take your partying very seriously and it it becomes something you're successful at.
2: Yeah, it's a commitment to partying. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a sense of self-identity. And I think it's definitely a really um, important issue, too. I think not only in isolated colleges, um, I think even in urban areas, too. um, You know, there's, students are always going to be partying. That's part of um, the college culture as well.
3: At, well absolutely I, I do I, I don't I, I couldn't imagine there's too many schools where you don't have an element of drinking and you know a, a bit of the drug use uh, it but it becomes just so much more pervasive when you've got these schools that are isolated where so many of the students live here and they have very few alternatives mm-hmm. for what to do on weekends mm-hmm. so it really just it just exacerbates any kind of problem um you know just given the isolation issue but you're but you're absolutely right every school has has an element of this
2: yeah yeah it's, it's definitely a very interesting question i think i feel even um myself i feel very torn about it because um i went to usc which is kind of a farm undergrad, grab is kind of a big um party school and um i do remember you know it is it was really fun um to party back in the day but um, yeah I, I do you know these consequences are very um, very sobering and very disturbing
3: well, but but, it, but it's interesting that you you say what you did because this is the, re- the reality is that most students come to these schools and they graduate and they go on with their lives and nothing bad you know ex- extensively bad happened to them I mean yeah along the way maybe they had some scrapes and, and bruises and, and blackouts and whatever, and a lot of hangovers, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But but nothing, you know, tragic happens. And so they really don't see, um, you know, what, what the problem is. They don't see any of it as a problem. Um, and, and so, I, you know, I think that is why it, it's perpetuated because until you actually see what it's doing to the outsiders of the the group, because when you're partying yourself, you're taking the risks. Yeah. You you know, you're voluntarily saying, listen, you know, know, what's a few scrapes and and bruises because I'm having a fantastic time. It's the other people who live around you that aren't um, voluntarily, you know, partying, and yet they are also um, taking on these risks. But, But it is, I mean, I I see that a lot, this sort of the the normalization of all of this, because really, in the long run, most people come out okay. The ones who have managed to get beyond their freshman year, and and I think it's learning the balance. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to, students who are successful in terms of graduating who also partied along the way learn eventually that you can only party, still, you know, this much, <laughs> this many hours and still study this many hours in order to actually pass classes and it's a learning curve.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's a learning process. Yeah. Yeah, but I think even that notion can be a little bit dangerous because I think when students um, learn how to balance it. Um, you know, maybe increase the tolerance or whatever for alcohol. Um, mm. They might, mm. you know, be less uh, likely to stop because you know they might think that you know I've I got I got it all under control, even though they might not be. Do you know what I mean?
3: Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, a, that's actually a good point. I never thought about the. Um, but you might be right that it, it 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 can increase once they figure it figure it out. Then they actually can uh, party a little bit more. And, um, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's an interesting um, – when I actually looked at, you know, with the assumption that most people would party more in their early years than their latter years, there seems to be a last hurrah in the senior year,
2: uh-huh.
3: um, at least from my survey responses, where they – Kind of, I, I, what I think they were thinking was that it's are sort of their last chance. They're about to graduate. Let's, you know, give it one more, um, you know, one more uh, one last time. Um, one last yeah, party. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So it's it's kind of the junior year that they seem to lay the lowest and really they try and 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 uh, do well in their classes, and then and then right before graduation, it seems to pick up a little bit more. Yeah, it's interesting because you know you hear about
2: all these. Um, issues surrounding how um, higher education, you know, the costs associated with that are so high right now and that it's um, really hard to get into um, these colleges. Um, so you would think that students would be more worried about doing well in school, you know, how, mm-hmm. with all these added pressures and how no one is getting a job outside of college um, mm-hmm. in today's times, you know, so you would think that it will actually decrease um, that perhaps all these uh, expectations and all these pressures will make them a little bit more responsible. But it seems like uh, the rates of partying um, you know, it's not really slowing down.
3: No, not I, n- not at all. And I, you know, and partying's been around forever. I mean, probably since the origins of, of colleges, certainly students have uh, released tension on weekends with alcohol and whatever drugs were, um, you know, fashionable <laughs> during, during their times. <laughs> but uh, what probably, I mean, in, in, again, in my uh, research, I think what's, becoming a little bit more prevalent is the pervasiveness of it because we've got so many more schools that are letting in students that probably never used to go to college. Uh huh. So, right. you know, if, again, so it goes back to this idea of who schools are admitting. And um, when you just have a, a lot, a disproportionate number of students who really aren't in college to learn. Which is the general premise of what a college is. I mean, yes, you, you need you know you're trained for a specific career and that kind of thing. But if you really you, I think more and more students are going to college not to learn, but simply because it's just what you do, mm-hmm. and and so they're just they're not really sure why they're in college, and so they're making choices of where to go to college based on a place where they're going to have a good time versus a place where they're really going to be trained. For a career or where they're going to learn a craft or what, whatever, you know, the, the decision-making processes. But there are really more, more and more of these types of schools that seem to be disproportionately students who are coming in that just really want to party.
2: Yeah. Or perhaps, you know, they haven't really found a way uh, or a purpose um, and why they're, you know, in school for longer. Yeah. That makes sense. So I'm interested in knowing um, what are your students' reaction upon reading the book because I know um, for some of your classes I think um, they're required to read the book, right?
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, last semester I did actually for the first time. Well, I mean the book hasn't been out that long, but uh, I, I, I I introduced the book in a criminology course and we did a section on you know campus crime and and uh, intoxication crimes and um, they. I mean, nobody said anything bad about it. They didn't say, oh, what are you you kidding me? I mean, so everything sort of was, I think they saw themselves to some degree in in parts of the book, but I don't really, again, because they've normalized everything, I'm not sure if they really get why there's an entire book on it. (laughs) I just think it's, it's just so, it's so blasé to them that they're not quite sure why anybody's talking about it. Yeah, even um, if the facts are in
2: front of you, and they see, you know, it, I mean, your descriptions of all these events, um, some of them are really quite disturbing, you know, um,
3: yeah, so- yeah, I, yeah. Well, well, again, to. Of the party subculture, they seem disturbing. They certainly seem disturbing to me. But uh, you know, if, if anything else, because I would share with them a lot of um, the narratives. Uh, you know, one of one of my favorite is the uh, the student who describes what he I think he's calling umpiring, where students get together and and. On each side, and just we, you know, it slammed somebody into a yeah, wall, and yeah, the kid yeah. fell out off a balcony. I mean, it was pretty, yeah, like a it was
2: pretty, or yeah. pretty
3: crazy, and you know, I would share that with them, and they just all thought it was hysterical. <laughs> like so, you know, I just uh, yeah, it's hard. I don't. I'm. I. I. I think that this will. Um. There's. They're too. They're too much in it right now. Like they're just so much a part of a party subculture that it's probably harder. Um, to actually think about it theoretically or to understand, you know, I mean, I, I think on the surface they understand the idea of the situational normativity, but, um, I, I'm, I don't know. I mean, I have mixed, mixed review about how they, uh, really, um, thought of what they thought about the book and whether they really were engaged with the ideas that I was trying to lay out in terms of the series.
2: Yeah, perhaps you know, maybe later on when they when they can actually step back and
3: look up. Yeah, at it. yeah, yeah. I would, I would hope, so. <laughs> maybe someday. <laughs> but again, you know, they may say what what typically ends up happening, which is you you look back with very fond memories and you think those those were some crazy days. Uh, you know, that's that is really what ends up happening. I, I mean, assuming that they don't, you know, something tragic doesn't happen in the process. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and that's. I think that's part of the the um, difficult thing about this. You know, I mean, you know, obviously college really is a wonderful time for a lot of people, and there are a lot of really uh, fun and great memories. You know, but I think it's this balance of act between how can we keep not only ourselves safe, but everyone else around us, like you said, this uh, the community safe as well, but at the same time, still have a really good time.
0: You know,
3: yeah, that's really yeah the, res- the yeah the responsibility issue. Um, I think, and, and maybe that's why I, I'm hesitant to, to to talk about how they responded because I do spend a lot of time on on secondhand harms. Mm-hmm. and I think that's that's the problem they they seem to grasp. or the issue they they had trouble grasping is that what they do and they consider so much fun mm-hmm. is really not so much fun to the other people living in the town. And I think that's what they they don't quite get, and that might be a maturity level or 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 maybe that does just require time. And someday when, they're own, when they own a house <laughs> and when they're raising kids and they realize that, you know, the party going on next door at four in the morning really isn't much fun or, you know, having to clean up the vomit on your driveway the next day and all of these other issues that are really just impacting quality of life yeah. in the town. I mean, that's probably now that now that we're talking this through, that's probably, I think, why they, they were um, a little mixed in their reactions is because I don't think they quite get yet <laughs> what the the, in, the negative impact that this this subculture is having on um, the community.
2: Yeah, that makes sense because I mean, every, everywhere they look, the peers are doing exactly the same thing. You know, so I guess it's hard mm-hmm. for them to really see how it might impact um, another member of the community.
3: Yeah, and you know, and they come here and they feel very entitled. They are here to party, you know, and, and, and so if you try and tell them to turn their music off at two in the morning, they're, why? You know, I'm not doing it. So in their mind, they're not doing anything wrong. You're the one who's doing something wrong because you're, you you know, you should be partying. If you don't want to be partying, why are you here? Yeah, you're the party pooper. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, I think that's, that is probably something you just have to grow out of. You know, and I do talk about aging out of the partying um, in the book because a lot of the students who, well, when we actually ask point blank, and we say, you know, would you want to raise a family here? And they're like, hell no. Yeah. <laughs> so, so they know. You know, they know. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a place where you party. And then you graduate and then you go. You, you move on towards the real world because this really isn't their, re- this isn't a real world for them. This is, this is some make-believe, like, interim um, place. Where they can be crazy and do and, and and I mean literally act act poorly, and there's little consequences for them here. And I think they do realize that someday there will be consequences, but it's not yet. Yeah, not right now. <laughs>
2: yeah, well, great. Well, um, do you have any I guess main message or main concluding remark that you want our listeners to um, take away from your book?
3: Oh. Well, I, you know, I, I'm I'm not sure about the 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 main message, other than you know that I mean because I think I sort of lay out most everything that you know this is happening. I do I do know that I struggled trying to. Make some grand conclusions and policy um, mm-hmm. um, recommendations and I will say this, I am working on a second book with a colleague and we are actually addressing all of those issues in terms of um, the structural um, issues that sort of connect to the culture and we're, we're doing a broader um, perspective on the actual conflicts in college towns and the communities and, and basing it more on, on structure and, uh, and looking at policies. So, so yeah, I mean, hopefully I can connect it better in, in this future book um, and we'll see because I do know that a lot of people really would like, um, to know what to do, but you know, I don't. I unfortunately don't have the answers. Um, but we'll we'll see if I can come up with a few more in the future.
2: Yeah, that sounds really interesting. That sounds great. You have to let me know when that book comes out.
3: <laughs> I will certainly do that.
2: Well, I think you know we've taken up um, a lot of your time. So thank you so much for being here um, and talking with us.
3: I oh, well thank you. It, it was it was it was great to talk about the book. Thank you.
2: Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed the show. For more information about this podcast, please go to new books and alcohol, drugs, And, and please feel free to rate us on iTunes. Thank you.